Thank you, Ron. Uh, what a joy it is to be back with you um, and to have this time of worship together with you. Appreciate the song service and uh, appreciated the words and the songs that we were singing this morning. Um, last year at this time, Peter and I swapped pulpits. I, I pastor the church in Carrollton and he is there this morning to preach to the people that the Lord has given to me to shepherd, and I'm here trusting that the Lord will feed this flock as well. Uh, but again, it is such a joy to, to see you, to be with you, to have this time of worship, to um, renew acquaintances that I've had over the years as well. This morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles, and I'd like you to keep your Bibles handy. If you're scrolling, I'd like you to scroll handily. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me from time to time to different passages. This morning, we're in the book of Philippians chapter number 2. The message um, this morning is really kind of a looking back at 2020 as well as looking forward to 2021. As Christians, how do we look at 2020? As Christians, how do we look at 2021? Um, so it's sort of an in-between message there um, 2020 obviously has been a challenging year for all of us and has been challenging in the life of the church as well. Um, 2021 um, holds some similar challenges, perhaps even more difficult ones. So we want to look at that and see what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. I'd like to actually start reading um, down in verse number 5 and read through the first part of verse number 16. Chapter 2, beginning at verse number 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Perhaps a better translation comes from the King James where we find the words in verse 16, holding forth. To the word of or holding forth the word of life. Well, this passage is, of course, a reference to our Lord's incarnation, our Lord's coming. 
as well as to our Lord's crucifixion, his death on the cross. But it also highlights something that Ron prayed in his prayer, and that is that it is upon the basis of what we read in the first part of Philippians 2 that Christians have unity. Our unity is around truth. Particularly, it's around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what allows us to come together with the variety of backgrounds that we have, no matter where we are in this world. We can get along with someone else who holds to the truth concerning Jesus Christ, that he is, in fact, the Lord of Lords, that he will one day be recognized by all to be that very thing. So that's the basis upon which we can have unity. It's also the very basis that divides us from the rest of the world. We claim this to be the truth, and we claim this absolute truth in the midst of a postmodern world where there are no absolute truths. And so that immediately separates us out from the rest of the world. It also makes the world rather hostile to us. For we are claiming to not only know the truth, we are claiming to have experienced the truth in Christ. We are claiming to proclaim this truth where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no man can come unto the Father but through him. And so we claim that in a world which says you can't claim that. And more and more that is the case for us in this culture and in this society. Our text particularly this morning comes from verses 14 through 16 in Philippians 2. And the title of the message is that living in a morally and spiritually corrupt world, living in a morally and spiritually corrupt world. You can see in verse 15 that that's where I really get the title. In verse 15, again, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers at Philippi. And he says to them in first century, in the first century, he says that they are to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom they shine as luminaries. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation today, even as the Philippian believers did in the day that the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Philippians. We're living in a morally and spiritually corrupt world, aren't we? Now, for a number of us, and I look across the congregation this morning, for a number of us, our world's decline our nation's decline has been taken to a level that we probably could have never imagined. We see that in the decline of the family over the last several, several decades. We see that in the promotion of biblically identified sin. We see that in the decline in civility and traditional virtues. And of course, we're seeing it today played out in every sphere in politics but let me say, even though that is true, some still can look out their window and agree with the jazz musician, the late jazz musician, Louis Armstrong, 
What a wonderful world. Some can still say that. Well, this conclusion, that is, that this is a wonderful world, is not entirely wrong. It does highlight, it does acknowledge common grace, that common grace exists. That God's goodness to his creatures still is present. God sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. He sends sunshine on those that are good as well as those who are evil or bad. And the image of God in man is still manifested today as well, where we see a relative goodness between mankind. In my neighborhood, um, for example, uh, I will from time to time see neighbors pitching in with other neighbors, taking care of different things and different needs that individuals have. We also see it as people participate in benevolent activities, whether it's feeding the poor or taking care of those who are sick or perhaps sitting with those who are lonely. So there's a relative good that goes on simply because the image of God is still present, isn't it? This conclusion of Louis Armstrong as he sang the song, What a Wonderful World, This conclusion also acknowledges that Christianity has impacted the world positively. We've lived in a land, we've been privileged to live in a land where the influence of Christianity has been great. We've seen it in our founding fathers. Not that they were all Christian, but they were certainly influenced by Christianity. We see it in our founding documents where, again, Christianity has had an influence We've seen it in our morals in time past. We've seen it in our speech in the time past. We've seen it in the way that others have treated others in days gone by. We've seen it in an awareness of God. We've seen that. But in a large way, this has dramatically changed. The biblical God is no longer central in our culture's psyche, at least to a large and favorable extent. He's no longer central. And one telling way that this is manifested is by the moral and spiritual decline of our immediate world. The moral and spiritual decline of our culture. This environment in which we all now live, this environment poses a great danger to the Christian. It, it, it causes a great threat to us, poses a great threat to us. And the threat to the Christian and to Christianity at large, it is a threat. To the individual Christian, the present world environment or system in which we live tempts the Christian to join in with the world's rebellion against God, that is, to conform to the world, to become like the world in word and thought and in deed. There's the temptation to compromise, to try to be accepted by the world, presumably in order to win the world. Brothers and sisters, we want to and need to understand in light of what we have seen in 2020, and especially in what we can anticipate in 2021, we need to understand 
that the world will never truly side with Christ and the world will never truly side with those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus himself gives us a reason why that's the case in the Gospel of John in chapter number 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus said this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Our Lord tells us that lights come into the world and people in their fallenness hate the light and rather want to hold on to their evil deeds. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, they are not of the world. As he prayed this prayer in John 17, actually praying this to the Father, said this about the believer, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He said this to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So compromising and cuddling up to the world in thought, word, or deed is a very real temptation and a very real danger for the Christian. On the other hand, so is retreat. Retreating from the world so that there is little engagement with the world. So the scriptures say about us as believers that we are in the world, but we are just not of it and must not be of it. Again, as Paul says, be not conformed to this world lest you be pressed into its mold lest it makes you after its image. Be not conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. As I said earlier, the world in which we live is both crooked and perverted. And since the Christian has to dwell in this world, since we're not to go out of this world, but we live and reside in this world, the question is, how are we to live in it? How are we to live in a crooked and perverted world, in a morally and spiritually corrupt world like ours? And that is really, I think, the very question that the Apostle Paul is answering with our text in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. The question could be restated like this. How, brothers and sisters, are we to live since we are more and more fouling out of favor with the culture and are increasingly living in the world that is pagan, that is perverted, that is, that is perilous, that is persecuting. How are we to live in that world? And the apostle tells us here in, in these verses. He tells us as Christians that we are to do three things. First, he tells us that we are to submit fully to the will of God. Submit fully to the will of God. I want you to back up, if you would, in, in, in Philippians 2, the verses 12 and 13, which really gives us the context for this first point, submit fully to the will of God. Paul says, work out, reading from the NASB here, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling 
for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what Paul says in this verse, or these verses, he says that Christians are to act out the salvation that God has worked in them. They are to live as people who have been saved. We are to live as people who have been saved from our sin. We have a different relationship to sin since we have been saved. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to do that which God tells us to do. We are to, be, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, the Christian is to give expression to the grace of God in their lives. Let's understand that we do not work for our salvation. We do not work toward our salvation. We do not work at our salvation. Christians are to work out that which God has already worked in them by virtue of regeneration, by virtue of their conversion or repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But then Paul said an interesting thing next. He tells us that God is the one who is actuating our working out of our salvation. We are to work it out, but it is God who's causing us to work it out. It is God who is working in the believer both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God who is working in us to do that. God is the one who moves us to will. God is the one who moves us then to do what he desires for us and what he desires of us. So God works in us to do his will. For example, how is it that I came to be a preacher? How is it that I came to stand behind a pulpit and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ when my entire life from my youth up was bent towards athletics even after I was saved for a short period of time? How is it that I am now standing and have been standing proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? I could have resisted what God was doing in my heart and had I done so, there would have been great difficulty. I think of the prophet Jonah. God, you recall, tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim the message that he had for the Ninevites. And Jonah immediately disobeyed and went 180 degrees away from the command of God. And you remember that while on the sea, God brings up this tempest. Jonah is thrown into the water water. God prepares a great fish. Jonah is swallowed up, and three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of the great fish. And all the while he's in the belly of the great fish, God is working in Jonah both to will and to do precisely what God had commanded him to do in the first place. And so while inside the fish, he prays and repents of his sin. The fish spews him out on the shore and Jonah goes on to do precisely what God said, delivers the message of judgment to the Ninevites, delivers the message of grace to the Ninevites so that they repent and are spared the judgment of God. 
It was God who worked in Jonah. Through the circumstances, through the great fish, through the swallowing, through the tempest, being thrown overboard, both to will and then to do precisely what God wanted him to do. What God wants, though, for us as believers, he works in the Christian. He works in our hearts to fully submit to whatever he is working in us to be and to do. God wants us to fully submit to his will. And how is that heart submission to be manifested? How do we know that we are fully submitting to God? We see it in our text in verse 14. Let me say it this way. What token of full submission do we find in the text? And in verse 14, the answer is, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, the Christian must mature to the point of being like our precious Lord who did all the will of the Father, even though it involved suffering, even though it involved the, the cross, and even though it ultimately involved separation from the Father. We read about his suffering in Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So Jesus submitted fully to the will of the Father, even though it involved hardship and suffering. He did not complain in his heart. He did not dispute or argue with God about the Father's will. He did the Father's will. He fully submitted to what God wanted him to do. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, even in the midst of the anguish of that time, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. It was a full submission to the will of his heavenly Father. So this is the first thing that Paul tells us to do in order to live in a morally and spiritually corrupt world in a God-honoring and Christ-exalting way, to do all things without murmuring in our hearts, to not argue with God over God's will for us, even if it requires suffering. Fully submit. That's the way. To help us to further think through this, the Apostle Paul tells us in another place in 1 Corinthians he tells us that the things that took place in the life of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament had been recorded for our edification and for our encouragement as believers. There were times when Israel's example was good, but often Israel set for us a negative example. For example, think of how God had to work in them first to will and then to do his will in leaving Egypt. God raises up Moses. Moses goes and says as he goes, God is telling us to leave Egypt to the Israelites. They aren't sure about it at all, so he performs the miracles that God told him to perform, and they're on board. They believe God. They're ready to go. And so he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. God says, 
let my people go. And what did Pharaoh do? He increased the suffering on the Israel, on the people of Israel, didn't he? He made their workload harder, and they began to grumble and complain under the load of the suffering. And in fact, they refused to do what Moses or to believe what Moses had said, that they would be leaving Egypt. They only could see the suffering. And so they grumbled over the hardships. And then even as they were exiting from Egypt, you recall, they began to grumble because they didn't have the kind of food they wanted. I want you to see that, if you would. Would you turn over to the book of Numbers? Numbers chapter 13. Excuse me, Numbers chapter 11. Beginning at verse 1, reading down through verse 9, we begin to listen to the, the nation of Israel as they began to grumble over the provisions of God. And it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, he, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, the manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedellum. Now, the people went about and gathered it and ground it in, in hand mills or beat it in mortars, mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. They grumbled at the very provisions of God, didn't they? They not only grumbled, but they argued and disputed towards God. So that which was taking place in their heart began to manifest itself outwardly as they complained audibly. Later on, even after this incident in Numbers 13, the 12 spies finally get to go into the promised land. For 40 days, they're in the promised land. They see that the land is precisely what God said their land was going to be like, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they come back after their mission, carrying large clusters of grape, grapes, giving the report that it's precisely what God said, except... The inhabitants of the land are too strong for us. They're giants in the land, and we seem like grasshoppers in our sight compared to them. And so they began to grumble and complain once again 
even though it was clear that God had made it a point that this was to be their land, that they were to conquer the land. They complained at what it might cost them. They complained at the suffering that would come as a result of taking the land. Brothers and sisters, isn't that an apt picture of the way many of us deal with the un unpleasant aspects of God's will in our lives. Instead of full submission, there is evidence of resistance through complaining hearts and outward argument, argumentation vented towards the Lord. And that is not the way to live in a crooked and perverted culture. It simply does not reflect who our God is. Our God is great, is he not? Our God is faithful, isn't he? Our God is loving to his own, isn't he? Our God has promised and faithfully fulfills his promises to us, doesn't he? Our God is a good God, isn't he? And he's always good to us. As the people of God, isn't he? This is not the way then. Grumbling and disputing is not the way to not only live in a crooked and perverted generation. It, is, it does not give the witness to the Lord's salvation in us. That we have been delivered from our sin. That we have a living hope, not a meaningless, therefore, life. We have a hope that is alive. We have a hope that is sure. We have a hope that is eternal. It's ours by virtue of all that Christ has done in shedding his blood on the cross and rising from the dead, affirming that he was precisely all that he said he was and accomplishing our salvation. question I think then becomes if full submission is what God is after. The question is how can the Christian do this? I'm not even talking about the big events that may take place in our lives. I'm talking about the day after day things that go on in our lives and I want us to think about how often we complain and grumble in our hearts and dispute with God over whatever it is that's either inconvenient or perhaps brings some form of suffering into our lives on a day after day basis. How then can the Christian grow to fully submit to the will of God? How can he fully submit to God's working in him, both to will and to do of his good pleasure? And how can he do this when God's will is Hard, difficult, and may bring suffering. Well, again, I think the Christian has to mature. He must know who God is. He must know who his God is and what his God is like. 
He must trust in the Lord and what the Bible says about the relationship that he has with his people. In short, I think the Christian must believe in God and in his love for his own. Again, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this time back to 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I asked this question of the Apostle Paul, what enabled Paul to keep going? And then I looked at the life of the Apostle Paul and what it was like, and I want you to see what the life of the Apostle Paul was like. What was it like, beginning at verse number 23? Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was what his life was like in the pursuit of the will of God for him. What enabled the Apostle Paul to get up after being beaten five times, after receiving 40 lashes less one, after being beaten by rods, after being stoned and left for dead, and all the other things? What would possibly Keep him going, and then write in Philippians, do all things without murmurings or disputings. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, and I think we see the answer in Romans 8, which not only was for him, but it's for all Christians. Romans 8, beginning at verse number 35. Listen. Listen what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a man who was able to keep going in the midst of all of his suffering and hardship that came upon him by virtue of the fact that he was an apostle of Christ. 
and to do it without murmurings and disputings on the basis of he knew that everything that took place in his life was under the umbrella of God's love for him. And that nothing could separate him from that love. And so earlier in Romans 8 and verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are to called according to his purpose. He knew his God, he knew his God's love, and he knew that nothing, nothing in this world could ever separate him from that love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how is it? How is it that the Christian can keep on with the token of no murmuring and no disputing to fully submit to the will of God? He knows his God loves him. And even when he is corrected, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, despise not the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as the Father, the Son, in whom he's delighted. And so the Christian must mature to the place of knowing his God and knowing his God's love. And so what Paul says, the very first thing that we are to do Looking back at the difficulty of, of 2020, looking ahead as Christians going into 2021, not sure what it's going to be like or whether the pressures will increase upon us as believers. The first thing in living in a corrupt world like ours is to submit fully to the will of God. The second thing is found in verse 15, and that is that we are to show forth the character of God. Paul tells us that we are to prove ourselves to be children of God. And obviously, the apostle is referring to not the uh, idea that everyone is a child of God by virtue of being born physically, but he's talking about the special relationship that we have with God on the basis of the fact that we have been born spiritually. We are born of God. We are born from above. We have been made spiritually alive in Christ. We have been born again. So God has regenerated us by the Spirit of God. He has adopted us into the family of God. He has saved us. And this special relationship now that we have as believers and as children of God is to display itself before the world so that being a child of God means being like God being like his own the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gave an example of it I'll read it to you and you won't have to change you won't have to flip to it but Jesus said this you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your brother hate your enemy but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father, King James, so that you may children of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, Jesus says, even in the midst of persecuting persecution, you are to love your enemy. You are to pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you can be like your heavenly father as sons of God. So what he says is that our special relationship as children of God is to be reflected in the way that we live, and our living, therefore, is to be like our God. It is to reflect the God who is our Father. And specifically, in our text in Philippians 2, this special character that Paul is advocating for This special character manifests itself as the believer is blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted world, verse 15. In other words, like Daniel of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Daniel, the Christian is to live in such a way so as to give no occasion for scandal. You remember that? You remember that situation? Daniel was of such high character that even those who were jealous of the authority that had been given to him by the king couldn't find occasion to slander him except as it related to his God. He was faultless before them all in how he conducted business of the nation so that they could not accuse him of anything. He was blameless before them. And so we as believers are to live life in that same way. Our life is to be open before the Lord. There is nothing between us and the Lord. We are, as Paul says, to be innocent. So that the Christian is not only blameless before others, but he is blameless in the deepest recesses of his heart before the eyes of the Lord. So in heart... And in action, there is no cause for God to reprove us because we are above reproach. And notice in our text in Philippians 2 that this behavior, this inner disposition, Paul puts in stark contrast to the world around us because the world is crooked. The world is twisted and full of lies. The world is distorted and perverted in nature. It is a world of darkness, whereas the Christian, as Paul says, we are to appear as light in the world or as lights in the world. Our lives are to be like stars shining in the night. We are to be luminaries in the darkness that surround us in this morally and spiritually corrupt world. And we are this as we show forth the character of God. So for then the way to live in a morally and spiritually corrupt world is to submit fully to the the will of God. It is to show forth the character of God. Christians will only be seen as hypocrites if we are right in our doctrine, but our lives are not blameless and innocent and above reproach. 
But on the other hand, our lives, our lives will not shine brightly. They will not have the preserving and purifying effect in this corrupt world if we do not also do this. Share freely the word of God. That's verse 16. We are to hold forth the word of life. Now take notice of the distinction that Paul makes. He calls the word, not merely the word of God, it is that. He calls it the word of life. This is another way to describe the gospel, is another way to describe the good news of Jesus Christ. Christians are to share freely. They are to hold forth the gospel. And I know you know the gospel. I know that week after week from this pulpit, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hear the bad news of man's sinfulness before God, but not merely his sinfulness, but his hopelessness and his helplessness to do anything about his sinfulness. And you hear of the good news of God sending his son in the likeness of sinful man so that he would live a pure and sinless life, live righteously before God, fulfill all the law, willingly go to the cross to make atonement, to be a substitute for our sin, so that all who would repent of their sin and put their trust in him alone would have eternal life. You know that gospel. And that is what we are to share freely and hold forth, the gospel of life. We, you and I, are to evangelize those who are all around us in darkness. And when I say evangelize, immediately it conjures all kinds of negativity in the believer's minds. Perhaps because of the concept we have of what evangelism means. For some, it is this fearful thing of having to go around and knock on everybody's door and confront them fresh, not knowing them, and, and try to tell them the gospel knowing that they're going to slam the door in your face. For some, that's what evangelism conjures in their mind. And there are some who are very good at doing that, but not very many. So this negativity, I want us to just look at evangelism through three basic things. Number one, it must be done by all. The scriptures are very clear about evangelism, that all Christians are to be engaged in the enterprise of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. All Christians. But number two, it must be done in love. One of the ways that it's not done in love is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on that great chapter on love. Love is not rude, it says. To evangelize with and be rude at the same time sort of undermines the idea of evangelizing in love, or speaking the truth in love. So we are to do it in love, 
But then lastly, I would say this. We are to do it by giving the gospel. By showing freely or sharing freely the gospel message. Good works are what Christians are to do. But good works alone is not evangelism. We evangelize when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else can be a pre-evangelistic effort and our, everything else is necessary. But evangelism involves proclaiming the gospel. However we go about doing it, we all are to go about doing it some way and engage in that enterprise. Brothers and sisters, our neighbors are lost. And because our neighbors are lost, they will go to hell if they do not repent and believe in Christ. We, Paul says, have the word of life. It is the gospel. The gospel is the word about eternal life. It is the word that brings life. It is the word that sustains and supports life. And brothers and sisters, we are to share freely the word of life. So Paul says three things. Submit fully, show forth, share freely. That's how we are to live in a morally and spiritually corrupt world. In the world in which we live. Let's pray together.